Today I welcome Dan Griffiths, President at Stevenson School in the USA. In this episode, we talk about the experience for future heads, the worrying turnover rate of head teachers, how to deliver one school messaging, and the full cost of independent education and how to make it accessible for all. I know you recently had an article published in the National Association of Independent Schools magazine about helping future heads gain the experience they need. How do we help future school heads get this experience, which is looked for by search committees? That's, that's a huge question. And it's all, I think it's a fairly simple one as well, in that there are just certain things that search committees or boards of trustees are looking for. And it's very hard in those sort of up and coming roles, whether it's as a division head or in US schools, particularly six through 12 or pre K through 12 schools, you'll have people who oversee program and teachers and hiring, but you're not getting the experience in. You can't point to a track record of raising money, of setting an admission strategy, setting a communication strategy. So I think it takes a really secure head of school to be able to not hand over the reins to that, but feel able to sort of pass on some responsibility to someone who reports to them and allow them to get genuine experience they can point to. Because it's the first question you get asked, have you raised money? Have you run a campaign? Have you taken these really big and hard decisions? And, and you could have done all the workshops in the world and you could have attended all the aspiring leader programs. But until you've actually had that practical experience, it's very hard for you to make your case when compared with someone who has done that. Even if they've not done it incredibly well, they can still point to an experience and a learning experience. So I think it takes a really secure head of school to be able to give genuine responsibility in the area, allow connection for a division head, more connection with the board of trustees. Quite often, the head is the sole point of contact for the board of trustees, but allowing greater access to the board to those who are aspiring to headships, I think, is really important. So you understand the language of what trustees are looking for. And there's a big report that came out a couple of years ago that showed that the average head tenure is coming down and about 20% of heads leave within three years, three to five years of being appointed. And it's often a disconnect between board expectations and head expectations. So if you go into it completely blind as a division head and you've never worked with a board, the probability of you knowing how to work with a board is really low. I think that's a crucial point of connection. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about the head teacher turnover rates are high. I mean, you're almost turning into Premier League football managers when it comes to, again, a disconnect between where the money is and the governance and then the educational expectations in terms of, you know, and then you're balancing operations. So is there any kind of toolkit? I mean, is there a checklist? Are there things that you would put together that you would provide to these aspiring school leads to say, look, if you just focus on these, these are the core that you need. These are the nice to haves. Is it as easy as that? And then you kind of encourage them to search to get that experience, as you say, not in workshops, but practical. It's interesting you mentioned that. I'm just thinking of leads right now. It's like, what happens when things don't look right? They turn to Sam Allardyce. I think you see the same thing in schools that it's okay to, to look at the, the person who has great ideas, great energy, has good vision. But when push comes to shove, I want being there, seen and done it. So I go and get Roy Hodgson again. And I think that happens in schools as well, is that when push comes to shove, you look at someone who looks great, could bring a lot to your school, but hasn't got a demonstrated track record of doing that thing. And you look at someone who's kind of done it in a number of schools, the risk averse path. And usually when you're searching for a head, you know, maybe you're in a position where you do want to be a little more risk averse. Quite often they look at the person who brings that practical experience. I think mentorship is key. 
And you see that in NIS has an aspiring school leaders program, which is really, really popular. But again, not letting that get too theoretical or workshopping, like actual practical experience. Again, I, I just come back to the fact that it comes down to heads of school being secure enough in their role that they are able to offer genuine areas of responsibility and partner with aspiring school leaders, whether you're a dean of enrollment management, whether you're a director of advancement, whether you're a division head, to really allow them to have like genuine leadership rather than sort of being that second tier. And you've always got the head behind you supporting, but also being that point of contact with the board and, and being the person passing on the information. It does take a lot of security. And do you think the expectations of head teachers now is higher in terms of the board of trustees? You know, you talk about that disconnect. And also, you know, is the high turnover also got a trigger from the lockdown and what we've seen the last three years because you know there's been a huge toll on leadership you know navigating the seas of covid is that kind of exaggerated maybe the turnover i would say yes i think covid was exhausting just as, a, as someone running a 912 campus i think i took one afternoon vacation uh, the summer of covid and the next year maybe like two days i went a couple of years where i just could not step away because there was a new variant or you had to do this or there was another government policy that came out. It was a really exhausting time. Heads of school had to make some really difficult decisions about opening or closing schools that not everyone agreed with. We're at a time, in the, particularly in the US, and I don't know what it's like in the UK, but everything is so polarized. COVID was one example, but the equity, inclusion, justice work is another area where it's so polarized that you have one element of the parent body and the student body really wanting change. And then you'll have an equal and opposite number who are very resistant and don't believe in some of the things that others believe in really strongly. That this philosophical, political polarization is really, I think, impacting how heads do their job. You have to make some difficult decisions. Can't please all the people all the time. And you always seem to be on an exercise of who can you disappoint the least. Is it the same here? It's definitely not the same here. You know, and again, I've spoken to many heads across the states and you know the polarization is there and it's you know we can read about it here we can see it i can talk to friends and colleagues in the states and you are really feeling it you know you talk about dij all of the stuff that's going on and it can't just be it, we have a committee and we're kind of getting together and talking about it it's positive action but it's constant action and changing the way you do things so yeah, I think you're in a more difficult position, but I just think it's of currency that we need to make sure we are addressing it because these are real questions that the students that you've got going through your schools are asking and ultimately they're the ones that I think we have to satisfy more than everyone else. And how are you finding that? I mean, you're an experienced head. Maybe the last two years have really been life-changing from a schooling perspective. It's really good work. It's important work. So our job as educators is really to guide students, not to tell them what to think, um, but give them the tools on how to examine the situation and figure out for themselves their stance. And when we do that well, students of today are coming through in a way that does actually give me a lot of hope for the future. I think my generation and previous generations are, maybe we were the cause of a lot of these issues and again, in the way of change. The students, they just have an eye for justice and equity. And there's less about Again, I grew up in the 80s with the, the, the Gordon Gecko, Margaret Thatcher generation. You know, it's about there was a lot of individualization, the power of the individual. I just don't see that as much with this current generation of students coming through. There's much more of an eye to equity and to being empathetic 
And we really, really do focus on that in school. And it's interesting to talk about this generation, you know, on the one side, they're very much into themselves. So there's a sense of self-vanity and perfection. And then the other bit is because they have access to the tools to connect to social networks and digital media, they have the voice and they use that very well because they want to make change. And I think it's rather exciting that they do want to do that. It's our job as schools to really make sure that as part of their experience, they are seeing and hearing different voices, which comes down to admissions. It comes down to access. It comes down to hiring, making sure that you're not hiring a homogenous group of faculty with one you know, particular vested viewpoint that we're kind of pushing. We want kids to see people from different backgrounds, from different ethnic, racial, religious, socioeconomic backgrounds, all being part of a conversation. And that means you have to be very intentional about your, your hiring, about your admissions, about a broad diversity of families being part of your school, and then how you steward their experience to make sure that, again, you're not privileging one story, one voice. And we all learn to like listen to each other. And it sounds sort of really sort of simplistic and you know, maybe a little naive, but it's actually often as simple as that. You're doing a lot of work around one school messaging for the PK through 12 schools. I mean, what do you mean by one school messaging? In the US, where there are a number of schools that you get families coming in at four years of age, and you can have a journey of up to 14 years with those families. You have the opportunity to really build a scope and sequence of both academic curriculum, social emotional learning, and the DEIJ curriculum across those 14 years. So there is continuity, but it's not seen as a discrete elementary experience and a different middle school experience and a different high school experience. They're going to be different because the kids are different age, but there should be a through line that connects the philosophy and mission of the school. Another huge benefit of it is that if you're a 9 through 12 school, you're getting kids from all over the place arriving as ninth graders. We have expert middle school faculty who can help our high school teachers really understand what a ninth grader needs and smooth that transition. And it, it works for our kids moving to the upper division. But it also helps us understand eighth graders. Same with that transition fourth to fifth grade that we have here. Having those teachers who are experts at those developmental stages available to work with those who are going to receive them next is a massive advantage. And I don't think I've said this, it's no big secret. I don't think Stevenson has done that terribly effectively because they've treated them as two different campuses. We're physically separate, uh, K8 and then 912. But there's so many advantages that you can take care of in terms of fundraising, relationships with families for 14 years. Our lower division families can see the impact that they're giving to our high school project because their kids will be there and it'll be built by the time they get there, which is not something you have in schools that have a tighter age range. What are the biggest challenges for you know this one school and an all through? There'll obviously be retention at key transition pieces, which will be normal. What are the challenges of, you know, you mentioned you've got two sites and sometimes, you know, there's affinity to the location, but how do you overcome some of those challenges and what are they? We always assume that we couldn't have like crossover classes or it was too difficult to get the middle school kids. We have the gym and the fields and the pool are on our upper division campus. They're about three miles apart. It was always thought that's too far to use the two different schools on the same day. And then our PE teacher and one of the folks who works in the athletic department, it was raining. They didn't have a gym on the other campus. So they just grabbed two vans, brought their class of middle school kids up and used the basketball gym up here, had lunch on our campus, took them back and they didn't miss a minute of class. And all of a sudden, the rest of the campus going, hang on a minute, maybe I can use the dance studio up there. Maybe I can use the theater. Maybe I can come up to the maker space or whatever it is. And so it just took two relatively new faculty just breaking convention saying, no, that's silly. Of course we can. 
and now it's open the floodgates, which is fantastic. But sometimes it's as simple as that. It just takes some pioneering spirit and now I can do attitude in these two teachers. And then and now it's going to change things. With families, it's making each transition distinct enough because you can get that feeling. I don't want to be at the same school for 14 years with the same people, the same everything. It can feel a little samey, but we have 36 students in our eighth grade and we have 125 in our ninth grade. So we bring in another sort of 90 new students, which changes the experience massively. Changing campus does help in that context because it does feel like a new experience, but it feels familiar enough that it's not scary, but it feels different enough. So that does help us. So making sure that each stage feels distinct, but there's that philosophical and sort of values-driven through line that connects them is just kind of a sweet spot. And is it easy to get that cohesive message? You talk about values connecting, obviously, the different year groups of grades as you go through, because that has to be the thread that underpins everything. So how do you ensure that all these multiple voices maintain your cohesive message? The core values that we, and I mean, they're not unique. We talk about sort of belonging, safety, trust, inclusion, respect. Those are our core values. Our school's mission talks about learning to shape a joyful life uh, with an appreciation of achievements. That's kind of the foundation of our school mission. That looks really different, but by prioritizing that line of learning to shape a joyful life, what that looks like for a five-year-old, what that looks like for a 14-year-old, what it looks like for an 18-year-old are different. Having that well-defined and what safety and trust and respect looks like to a six-year-old is very different. Recognizing the difference between the ages, but there's this common thread. It's very much something we have to work with teachers. And the thing about them, they're pretty common sense core values. We haven't invented anything new or strange or startling here. It's These are about being a decent human being. And so how do you hold that bar for a seven-year-old? That's down to people who are experts in working with seven-year-olds. My background is in older kids, so I'm not going to go and tell the lower division teachers how to do that. Um, but I'm going to ask them the question of how are you doing this and how effective is it and how are you measuring that you are being effective in terms of behavioral outcomes, in terms of academic outcomes, in terms of retention of families, in terms of all these other things. So my job isn't to tell them how to teach or even what to teach. It's ask the questions of, are we doing what we say we're doing? I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. You've also expressed an interest in the issues surrounding the full cost of an independent education. I don't think this gets talked about enough, actually. How do we assess and meet the true cost of the experience of an independent school? And why is it important to kind of challenge the privilege that the few get to get to go to an independent school? Within a school, I'll sort of start with that, is that tuition is one component of being able to access what a school provides. So particularly in a boarding school, we can give significant tuition discounting. And so families can afford the ticket price of admission, if you like. But once you admit a family, you want to make sure that you're not throwing up sort of tiers of participation or barriers to be able to have full access so that when it comes to trips or sports or activities, they are only available to those that can afford to pay for them above and beyond tuition. If you have a family who socioeconomically are really stretched to pay maybe 10% of the tuition, and then I just throw a $50 charge for a yearbook on their end of year bill, or I throw, oh, and I need $200 for this outdoor trip, and you need 
to pay $200 for this sports uniform or whatever it is, those kids don't have access. And so that those trips and those other things that make the whole experience aren't accessible to everyone. So that's a piece of budgeting that you have to think about and make sure that any sort of financial aid support includes, we have what's called a full experience fund. How do we support kids, not just with tuition, but the expenses of being a full participant equally to those that can afford it? AP test fees, SAT test fees, these all add up. And for some families, there's significant barriers. We just need to be thoughtful about anticipating all of those extra costs, even as simple as our boarders do their own laundry. The previous expectation is kids got on the shuttle bus and went to Target and bought themselves Tide Pods or they whatever they, they needed. Some kids couldn't afford that. And so they weren't washing their clothes. But now we have laundry potential provided in the rooms. Just small things like that. So, And that comes from listening to the students and then being honest with us about what is it that makes you feel fully included, thoughtfully, and what makes you feel less than or othered or kind of a lesser participant in the school experience. So those things are so important to keep an eye on. Yeah, and they're really difficult as well. You want to do this outreach, you want to make it accessible because there is opportunity and, you know, just because you haven't got the financial means to send your child to a great independent school, why should it not be attainable? How do you go about making yourselves accessible and available to those students? You know, how do they know about this? Is there intentional outreach that you do or is it just because of word of mouth and someone might find out about it? Because that's where, again, a lot of independents struggle is that, look, we do all this stuff. We do all the means tests we do bursaries and scholarships and we fund lots of places, but the real people that need it, do they know that they can do it or will they never look because they go, look, I'm never going to look for a private boarding school. It's this way out. Yeah, that is a common narrative we see, and that does take hard work. So partnering with community-based organizations, you know, working with like A Better Chance, um, Boys and Girls Club, place like that, encouraging students. It's often through sports connections. So kids who play on teams, a lot of our faculty volunteer coach there, and just talking to families like, have you looked at Stevenson? They say, no, we couldn't afford that. Well, actually, we have, you know, we give out over $8 million financial aid. We're just looking for the best kids who will make the most out of the opportunity. And that doesn't mean the ones with a 4.2 GPA or the ones who are on all state sports teams. It's kids who are going to come and just take advantage of the opportunity, good kids. And so getting that word out there uh, throughout the community and when they visit, one, making sure that we're assessing students appropriately in the admissions process, that we're not just looking for that perfect polished resume. There are kids who apply to Stevenson who have consultants who help them with their application, who take like the SSAT, we no longer look at what's called the SSAT, which is a an entrance kind of test for high schools. We're test blind. We won't even look at those because students coming from certain schools have no access to preparation or they're 35 kids in their math class as opposed to 10 and they've got their own private math tutor. We want to make sure that these things that are markers of, of real sort of privilege aren't the sole arbiter of whether we accept a kid or not. So having a really robust and holistic admissions process, which is really time consuming. It's quite expensive, but it's really important. So trying to do all those things and also not just looking to fill the school with the same students you've always filled the school with, the same feeder schools, like get out to other schools. And that can be really hard for a school because you end up not admitting a kid from a family of an alum or from a family who's always expected their kid to get in because 
our feeder school always gets them in. It's like, well, actually, no, we're taking kids from 10 different feeder schools this year. So we're taking fewer from you. It's hard. It damages relationships, but it's the right thing to do. And the school will be better for it in the long run. So it takes some tough conversations and some difficult decisions, but ultimately the school it lives its mission better if it does that. And it's fantastic you do that. How do you support the students who do come in that you've provided financial support with? There's that human side as well that they still feel like it's charity. All of these kids have the latest, you know, it's the intentional things you're doing around the tie tablets and that's great. So the things that they don't need to be exposed to, they can just have a good education. How do you ensure that they do just get embedded and also that the more privileged kids whose parents are paying for their education and get the latest of everything also understand and they can all feel that they're equal? There's so much we can do and we're never going to be able to eliminate that feeling of difference. We can just do our best to try and quieten the noise around it, anticipate what those issues are. You mentioned sort of books, laptops, additional expenses, making sure that those are provided when the kid gets here. They don't have to worry about that. If we can anticipate by talking to families and by talking to former students, current students who've been through that transition and learn from them about what was really difficult, then we can work on it. If we don't ask, we don't know. And we just perpetuate the same mistakes year after year. So it really is important to give current students that voice and say, you know what, when I was in ninth grade, this was really hard. It's like, okay, we can deal with that. We can give like a cash allowance to students on a certain percentage financially so that they can go to the movies with their friends. Kids saying, well, I always made an excuse to not go out for lunch with the others. Like, okay, we can use that. And we can actually, it resonates a lot with our alumni in terms of a fundraising thing. And we can actually cover a lot of the cost with sort of endowed funds that people who want to support this full experience. And we're seeing a lot of success there. In terms of kids coming from sort of the, the less traditional feeder backgrounds, Again, it's anticipation. It's making sure they have the academic support. It's making sure they have access to our learning specialists. It's often around executive functioning, organization, expectation levels, um, sort of level setting there and making sure that we scaffold their experience when they come in, knowing that it's about anticipation. It's about getting feedback from those that have have walked that path before. I want to ask you about change because you mentioned it when we first started about when trustees or we're looking for new heads coming into schools. This, the balance between the Sam Allardyce is coming in because you just know it's a safe pair of hands, you're going to do it. And then there's still those ones that have those more ambition and vision. How do you make sure that you are yourself as well keeping, because you are, you know, a very experienced head. So how do you make sure, even down to curriculum, what they learn, how do you make sure that you yourself keep that kind of change current? I think a big part of it is humility. You never know everything and things are always changing. I think It's building a really strong team around you. It's empowering people to really sort of dive into those roles. So your academic leaders, your leaders in other areas, it's about professional development. For new heads, it's very much about mentoring and coaching. If you're a board hiring a new head, making sure that they do have an experienced head, former head or like an executive coach available to them. So they have someone who they can objectively speak through challenges who are not vested in the school. And what about you, Dan? Do you like change? My former head, he described me as a pragmatic revolutionary. When there is need for change and I see something that could be better for students and families, I'm all for it, but I want to make sure that I've done my homework first and I've considered all of the the things that I can control or maybe anticipate, make sure I've thought them through and consulted as broadly as possible and made sure I've heard all the voices who are going to be impacted before bringing about the change. 
I'm a scientist by training. So I always think through like all the variables, how am I controlling? So how do I know what is actually causing the effect? And how do I isolate that? And how do I address that thing? And so that's just my thought process. And that involves lots of different voices. It involves getting feedback from parents, from students, from faculty, making sure that you're not overlooking one constituent group and, and making assumptions. Like it's a, Avoiding assumptions is huge. And just because it worked at one place doesn't mean it's going to work somewhere else because no two schools are the same. I'm going to ask you one final question. I want you to look into your crystal ball. We've seen a lot of change in education probably the last 20, 20 years, really. But obviously, education itself hasn't really evolved or been too revolutionary over the last 100 years. Look in your crystal ball to 2050. What would you like the future of education to look like? There are some timeless pieces in education that I think when it is done well, how you do it and what it looks like with the evolution of technology and, and, and other things, that might change. But childhood is a time of real and pure curiosity. And so if we are creating conditions where kids can explore the world, learn about what's going on and really teach for understanding and giving them tools to just keep learning in a deeper and deeper way, then I think that's pretty timeless. How you do that is obviously it's evolved and it will continue to evolve. But that's for me is the core is teaching for understanding, privileging curiosity, exploration. We can talk about sort of constructive education. Model. There are lots of different models that do that, but that's at its core. What I keep coming back to is you're in a pre-K through 12 school. If we look at the younger kids, the way that they approach learning, something happens as we go through middle and high school where it becomes more and more transactional, more about grades, more about what comes next. I think as long as you protect kids to live in the moment and explore what they're interested in and really be curious and try and delay that transactional moment for as long as possible, which I know is inevitable because colleges look at grades. All like that. We're never going to get rid of that. But if we can preserve that sort of pure curiosity driven learning that search for understanding that's what kids are wired to do and if we can just focus on that i think that'll persist things will change technologically structurally but that's an enduring truth in my mind about what education should be about you can connect with me on twitter instagram and via linkedin remember keep inspiring schools we need more future school thinking now